So are you saying that the pathway to success is to join as many MLMs as you can when they first get started? <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be my new life strategy. I'm just going to like join every single one as early as I can and try to, you know, convince everyone just, I know to join. Just build that downline with all of them and hopefully you can Yeah. Make I it mean, work. you sound so pro MLM. You should probably just confess to people that you're really a Rodan and Fields consultant and you're just making this video to try to convince everyone to buy your product. This is actually an Herbalife commercial. <laughs> Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode. We are discussing Lula Rich the scathing Amazon documentary that came out in 2021 about the LuLaRoe company, a women's wear multi-level marketing company specializing in brightly colored leggings. And dresses and shirts, I think. But they were best known for their leggings. Yeah, I think they had skirts, dresses, generally some modest-like clothing. It wasn't super cutting-edge fashion, but the prints that they used were really unique. I think they only ran about 5,000 items under one printing. when They they came up with a pattern, and they ran up to about 5,000 items with it. So whatever you got from them was going to be relatively unique. You couldn't just get the same pattern as everybody else. Yeah, and I think that was part of their appeal, was that people would fall in love with like one brand. And they, they talked about this in the documentary a little bit, how people would call it their unicorn brand or their unicorn print and always be on the hunt. So I think that kind of artificially, just like the diamond industry does, artificially lowering the supply kind of is a good marketing move. It sucks and it feels like kind of a cheap ploy, but it works. People get more excited about these, you know, rare things that they want. I think their products look fun. You know, in the documentary, it really showcased a bunch of, you know, interesting looking clothing that people felt good about. They were excited to wear, made them feel like they look good. They're excited to buy it. So should we get you some LuLaRoe leggings, Robert? Is well, that's not for me, but I think uh-huh. the buyers, you know, the people who actually were wearing the clothing when the business got started. So the business got started in 2012. And like all MLMs, rarely do they start as an MLM. They start with some sort of idea that blossoms into that. But people were interested in the product line from the get-go. I think they had something that somebody was happy to wear. Just because it's not my style doesn't mean that's not somebody's style. Yeah, no, it was extremely popular. I feel like I somehow missed out on the LuLaRoe craze. I was talking to a friend of ours and she was saying that she went to somebody who was selling a lot of their stuff and bought a bunch of their dresses and thought they were great and comfortable. And somehow I just missed it. Like I never, never knew anybody who was selling it. I've, part of it is that I've never been huge on social media. So I'm sure that was a factor. But yeah, I never owned anything LuLaRoe. And do not aspire to own anything LuLaRoe at this point, especially after (laughs) having seen the documentary. Well, so the documentary did just come out in the fall, fall 2021. And so I imagine a lot of folks haven't seen it. It's on Amazon Prime. What's this documentary all about? Like, How's it go? So Lula Rich is the name of the documentary, which is a play in the name LuLaRoe, obviously. LuLaRoe being the clothing company. And it's really just takes a deep dive into how the company got started. And they talk to so many different people who were involved at all different levels of the company. So everybody from like 
the person involved in accounting to some people who are in the design team helping create the prints and the owners of the business to people, a married couple named Mark and Deanne. And then the real stars of the show are these women who were the consultants, sales reps, whatever you want to call them, um, people who are actually joining the MLM to sell the product to other people and, of course, try to recruit others behind them in their quote-unquote downline. So they really cover a very wide base, and we get to know the business of LuLaRoe from all angles, which is really fascinating. They did a, a really good job putting together this documentary. It's a four-part series, and because there is just so much incredible content in Lula Rich and about multi-level marketing companies in general, we are going to do a two-part episode on Lula Rich. So we're excited to really dig into this content because there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I thought the show was really interesting that it was presented in a very engaging format. They also brought in somebody from the customer service side of the business, somebody oh, right. who's like a corporate trainer that tried to help new recruits know what was going on. Uh, they, they had someone who was in charge of their events and like party planning, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was a big part of trying to grow the brand, I think. But what was so shocking to me is this documentary does not exactly paint the company in a favorable light. And they got the founders, you know, the owners of the company to be primary interview subjects. Now, some of the interview footage they have is from depositions, but a lot of it was from them just sitting down talking to the producers, the people who are making this film, to tell their side of the story, which was just kind of fascinating because they've had so many issues along the way that I don't think they would have been very excited to to face that interview. And to be fair, I think in the fourth episode, they they note that they were not interested in doing a second follow-up interview with them. And perhaps after the way the questioning went the first time around, they decided it wasn't in their best interest to reveal a whole lot else. Yeah. I also think it's a testament to just how, how much you put yourself into the hands of filmmakers when you agree to be part of a project like that, right? Very true. Whether you're like going on to a reality show as a contestant or you're agreeing to be interviewed for some kind of documentary, the editing process can be so brutal. And of course, like what they put around you and in your interview, even if they show your interview completely, you have such little yeah, control. Over maybe it. they thought they were going to rehab the brand through this production. Mm -hmm. I honestly think they probably did feel that way based on the very beginning of the first episode is them just kind of getting settled in and talking to the producers about why they're excited to do the interview. That's true. And they, they really seemed like they thought it was going to be a real chance for them to tell their side of the story, which to be fair, they did. It's just that their side of the story still feels like total crap. Yeah. So. Well, so there's a lot to get into here around multi-level marketing. And as you said, this will be a two-part episode. This first episode will focus more on multi-level marketing in general. And then I think the second one will focus a little bit more on uh, the Lula Rich brand of feminism. Uh, yeah, it's a deep topic there. And, and a little bit more about maybe some of the overlap between multi-level marketing work and a traditional job and some of the good and some of the bad on it. But because there's so much to cover, I feel like we should just dive right in. We've got a lot of clips to share and a lot of interesting uh, footage to talk about. In the documentary, they bring in an expert, someone who does some studies on multi-level marketing and has a lot of market information. And for those of you who haven't really thought about this business model very much, I think this first clip really tells a lot about 
what the MLM world is, is really all about. Officially, multi-level marketing operates as income opportunity based upon selling products. It's a Tupperware party, and it's really fun. The girls get together and meet their old friends and make some new ones. Skincare, anti-aging cream, clothing, it doesn't really matter. Somebody takes a product directly to the customer, customer buys it, the salesman gets a commission, and this is legal. But what is really being sold is the unlimited opportunity. One person recruiting a multiple of other people and getting some of the money that they put in. They, in turn, each will need a multiple of people. So the number of people involved keeps increasing exponentially. You, you can only go about 13 levels and you pass the population of the human race on Earth. So the first thing that comes to mind when I hear this clip is you can only go about 13 levels before you reach the population of planet Earth, which is just completely insane. And I think it's such a difficult concept for us to really grab onto. So it's basically this idea of exponential thinking, right? Which is something that we humans are epically terrible at. So there are some fun examples of exponential thinking that will really blow your mind. Like, for example, I think if you take an average eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, you only have to fold it in half like less than 30 times in order for it to be thick enough to reach the moon, which is just, we can't wrap our heads around that. That doesn't make sense to us. And I think it's the same with multi-level marketing, even though if you sit down and put pen to paper and do the math on these problems, you are smacked in the face with the fact that they're true. We just can't emotionally understand that kind of math. So I think the fact that humans are bad at exponential thinking is one of the things that multi-level marketing companies take advantage of. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that their friend group is only so large. Right? There's only so many people that they can invite to be part of their downline, part of their, we're going to use the phrase pyramid here a lot. I think we should be honest about the fact that there are true pure pyramid schemes and then there are business models that resemble pyramid schemes. And I think this MLM uh, in general can be uh, one that resembles pyramid schemes or it can be a, a close to a pure pyramid scheme. And in fact, Lula Rich, Lula Rowe, excuse me, in the documentary, they revealed that they uh, were facing uh, charges from, I think, both the state of California and the state of Washington for operating as an illegal pyramid scheme. So they, uh, they certainly aren't perfect. Some MLMs are better than others about resembling a pyramid scheme with having something pure to offer. But ultimately, you're right. People are terrible, just straight up terrible at trying to analyze the numbers about what the potential market looks like for them and this sort of thing, because they just see the possibility of, oh, well, I can go get a handful of people beneath me and they can get a handful of people beneath them and a handful of people beneath them. And then all of a sudden, I just don't, I don't have to work at all. I can put my feet up and my downline will do everything for me, not realizing that that a network that size is more than everyone they know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, you also have this problem of saturation of the market, right? That unless you are getting two things right, one, getting in very early, and two, getting in very early with a company 
that has a really good product that people actually love, you are going to have an extremely difficult time actually making money with an MLM. And we're going to get into those statistics as we go on. But yeah, I think that's just something that people have a hard time grasping is just how saturated the market already is when they're getting in. And that's in large part because the MLMs are not putting out information on how many reps there already are and exactly what the sales are for each individual rep and how many people they have in their downline. So you're just, you're kind of fighting blind. You don't really have the statistics that you need to make a really good informed decision about that's, a specific MLM. That's so true. McDonald's isn't going to let there be McDonald's on all four corners at an intersection. Uh, but LuLaRoe or any other MLM isn't going to care if five people in an apartment complex are selling their product. Yeah, they're thrilled if that's the case. Yeah. yeah. But you, as the person trying to compete with all five people in your apartment complex, you are not going to be thrilled. Sidebar, I did once go to an intersection that had three subways at it in Florida. <laughs> it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. What is the world coming to? I think there might be a glitch in the matrix. I think so. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, hopefully Subway's got that figured out because it, that's not a good business model, just like it isn't for the person who buys into an MLM. Yeah. But you, you make a great point about kind of saturation. I think it's I think it's worse in smaller towns and smaller communities. For sure. Um, I read a statistic that in Manhattan, a town at the time of about a million and a half people, there were 10 LuLaRoe consultants. And in Pueblo, Colorado, a town of about... 100,000 people, there were 10 LuLaRoe consultants. So it's not exactly like people are deciding, the company is not deciding where affiliates and associates and consultants or whatever the name of their distributors and salespeople are called. They're not making a plan for that. They're just letting them go where they are and hope that they can be successful and, and give them a pat on the back and say, good luck, get after it. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is if we're talking about small town America Those are actually places where you might potentially have more success with a direct sales model because you may not live, you know, just a few blocks away from a Target or a Walmart or an outlet mall where you can find similar products like this. You might have to drive a pretty long way. And so it actually might make sense for you to have somebody who lives in your local area whose house you can pop over to to buy the products you need. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword because people will quickly catch on to the fact that in small-town America, this might be a better market for that. Combine that with the fact that in small-town America, you don't have nearly as many job opportunities and you're going to have a lot of people rushing to become the sales consultants for this new product. And then your small little market which might have been a great place to run one of these companies if there were only one, maybe two of you, suddenly you've got 15 and now nobody can really make any headway. And the only person who's even potentially doing well is the first one who is lucky enough to get in at the beginning. So if you haven't caught on yet, Carl and I have a little bit of disdain for the multi-level marketing model and much of the show will not exactly be praising it, even if there are companies that aren't quite as nasty as the LuLaRoe version of this. Uh, but Carla, do you think there's ever a value to the consumer for these MLMs? I guess you made the, the case for a small town where you don't have enough population density for a variety of options. And so 
someone who will do a part-time small business distribution channel creates that variety in, in a way that couldn't be sustained otherwise, I suppose? So anything small, else? Very, yeah. very rural small towns could potentially be a good place for a direct sales model where you're buying from a friend. Basically, a friend has set up a store in their house as opposed to having to drive, you know, 30, 40 miles to the nearest outlet mall or whatever it might be. Also, in days of yore, right, we hear this clip from, I'm guessing like the 1940s or 50s about Tupperware parties where there just weren't Targets, <laughs> there weren't Walmarts where you could buy anything and everything. And yeah, before we had these big box stores basically on every corner in America, I can see how there might have been more of a need for something like that. What I do not understand and will always despise is the fact that these consultants or sales reps make more money based on their quote-unquote downline. I understand why it makes sense for a company to say, hey, individual human who lives in Pueblo, Colorado, we think it would be great for you to sell this product out of your house. Can you do that? And have them say yes. But I never understand why it makes sense for that person to then go recruit a bunch of other people and for them to make money off of just recruiting those people as opposed to those people's actual sales. Well, I'm not as opposed to that model as you are. And I think we'll get to that in a bit. But what I want to go back to something on the small town side of things, because I think you're right. Maybe decades ago, when there weren't the big box stores, there were, le- there were fewer options for people. It made a lot of sense. I think now, doesn't Amazon basically replace the whole need for this sort of person-to-person sales? It's so easy to get your product there online and visible to somebody if they're looking for it. That you don't have to go convince a retailer to give you shelf space. You don't like. There's not a good reason why you, things that aren't needed in a hurry can't be sold through an online distribution model where having these individual sales consultants isn't all that necessary. Yeah. So Amazon delivers virtually everywhere except for like remote parts of Alaska. So basically, you can get whatever you want off the internet these days without having to talk to anyone or see anyone. And I think for some people, it's part of the appeal that they get to talk to a consultant and get personalized advice on like what eyeshadow goes with their complexion or what leggings flatter them the best. But I think that's really a minority opinion in today's world. Most people do not want to have to interact with salespeople. They just want to browse, make decisions on their own, and click purchase. Now I will say Amazon has a lot of strikes against it in terms of treating employees well. And there's a lot of people who don't want to support Amazon as a company, which I completely understand. But you should know that if you are using that as a reason to hold up multi-level marketing companies, as opposed to Amazon, you are not like supporting some individual person as opposed to a giant company, the vast majority of profits that are made to the extent any are made, which we're going to get into, are flowing to the company. If you are buying a product from an MLM rep, you are basically supporting a company that preys on women. When I say Amazon, I suppose I should be clear that I don't necessarily mean just Amazon. I mean any online distributor, right? 
you don't have to have a retail outlet in order to get your products to consumers anymore. Yeah, there's the online pathway. So whether it's Amazon or direct to the consumer through an online shopping portal that you own and manage yourself as a, as a company is fine. I just mean you don't need the direct sales model where, where you have a person going to your house throwing a Tupperware party. But uh, you and I have never sold any MLM products. I don't know that we've bought any appreciable amount of MLM products or felt substantial pressure to do so over the years. Do you have any other noteworthy experience? So my only brief brush with MLMs was as a law clerk. When I first graduated from law school, I worked for a judge, um, like helping basically with the behind the scenes work of running a courtroom. And we had a case in our courtroom go to trial that involved Mary Kay, which is a big Texas makeup company. They're famous for their pink Cadillacs and basically pink everything. So I won't go into too much detail, but essentially there was a young couple who had bought a lot of Mary Kay products, really thought that they could knock it out of the park and, you know, become successful, own a pink Cadillac of their very own. And it just didn't work out that way as it virtually never does. And they ended up in the same position that so many people who get into the MLM universe end up in. They had a garage full of makeup that they could not sell despite their best efforts and they didn't know what to do with it. I think what's so common is that people expect the opportunity to run their own business, right? They get to be the boss. They, they have all kinds of inspiring things that make you feel great when you get into this. But what you forget about or don't realize the, the consequence of when signing up is the number of rules that they have for you that you aren't really in charge of your business at all. They have a whole lot of procedural things that prevent you from doing what you think might be the best way to deal with the inventory you have or Know, trying to to maximize your profitability, you got to do it inside of the structure of their rules, which it sounds like it's something that you saw in your court case was that there were essentially what they ended up doing was creating a website of their very own and putting the products up for sale. And because people prefer to buy products online as opposed to <laughs> through a specific human being that they have to interact with in person, um, it started selling like hotcakes. People liked the product, but they didn't want to have to mess around with calling their Mary Kay rep. So she started doing really, really well with it. And basically Mary Kay caught wind of it. And they said, hey, we don't think you're following all these rules. You're selling some makeup that we have recalled or that we've changed or that may have just barely expired or... You're just not going about this in the way that we wanted you to go about this. And Mary Kay sued. Yeah. And, and I think that's my whole point, right? There are a lot of rules that you have to follow. Perhaps Mary Kay's gotten on board with an online vision between then and now. Yeah. Uh, Lula Rich was, Lula Rowe. I'm going to call them Lula Rich constantly because it's the documentary name. Lula Rowe uh, certainly encouraged online sales with their product, but each one's different. They all have their set of rules that you have to follow. In the MLM world, I think... Amway is maybe thought of as maybe the, the grandfather, you know, the, the the origin story for a lot of the different MLMs that we're very, very familiar with today. And in the Lula Rich documentary, they played an interesting clip uh, where, where someone at a sales conference for Amway was talking about what they had to offer. And I think it was kind of insightful for what the MLM model is all about. We offer freedom. 
We offer rewards. We offer recognition. And we offer hope. So when I hear that clip, I just think, yep, you are exactly right, Mr. Amway person. That is your product. What you offer is hope. What you offer is quote unquote opportunity. Like these are the things that this company actually sells. That's what they sell to their sales consultants, but I, they have real products that they offer to their consumers and the end buyers. I think that's necessary for this whole thing to work out at all. You know, like, like take LuLaRoe as an example. In 2016, they had a billion dollars in revenue. 2017, it was $2.3 billion in revenue. It's not as though they had some clunky product that no one was interested in, and this was a true pyramid scheme. It's really like that they, they had something compelling that somebody wanted. Okay, two things. One, there was also a legitimate product in the Breaking Bad car wash that was running as a front for a drug money laundering process. And I feel like this is not totally unrelated to that. It just feels like a front. Two, when you say revenue, do you mean the money that someone was actually paying to put the leggings on their legs, like the final, final customer, or do you mean what LuLaRoe Corporate is taking home? I mean, I, I think all I, the data that they reported is what LuLaRoe Corporate was taking home, which I realize is the result of sales to their sales consultants. Yeah, that's selling it in the hopes but, that but, someone will ultimately want to really buy it and not buy this quote-unquote opportunity, not buy hope. Like the Amway guy is saying. So I'm not trying to say that LuLaRoe sold a billion dollars worth of leggings to consumers in 2016. What I'm trying to say is they had a product that people cared about and were excited about. You don't you don't do have a billion dollars in revenue if you have a product that no one is interested in. It had to, had to be a good enough product for all the salespeople, all the distributors to want to get in and do it themselves. Yeah, and I think LuLaRoe is maybe one of the exceptions to the rule when it comes to MLMs, because a lot of them just have pretty basic products that are not unique or special in any meaningful way. But LuLaRoe did seem to have something that really caught the public imagination and people wanted these crazy prints. They wanted to find their unicorn print and all that jazz. So I get it. They definitely were doing something more correctly than a lot of MLMs do. But I mean, ultimately, they were not immune to the greed that so many MLM companies are all about. And I mean, just look what happened. They ended up not totally crumbling. LuLaRoe still exists today. But I think if someone saw you wearing LuLaRoe leggings today, they would be like, mm, didn't you see that documentary? <laughs> I feel like you shouldn't be wearing those. <laughs> I'm not sure it had that great of viewership just yet. But their product, yeah, it was a little bit more unique. Um, I think it had a space. People were excited about it. I'm not going to argue with you that the gentleman from Amway and his uh, motivational speech there was definitely trying to sell you hopes and dreams, but he was not speaking to the Amway end consumer. He was speaking to people who were interested in being an Amway distributor. Yeah, which is ultimately the one and only way that Amway corporate makes money, which is my whole point, that it's just such complete and utter bullshit to have a company that's literally just sells hope. Like that is- But th that's my whole point. They're selling more than hope. They have an end product 
And they are also creating a different go-to-market strategy, which can work and does work for some people. How many people? Oh, we'll talk about gonna, statistics. We're going to get into but, it. And I know the numbers aren't good. <laughs> um, however, it it doesn't mean that they all they have is hope. This isn't a Bernie, Bernie Madoff model. There is an actual end product. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I just don't feel like it's the heart of what they're truly selling. And they're not honest about that. And I think that's the part that just makes me want to punch MLMs in the face. So let's pretend that you're Deanne, you're Mark. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. I, I get to be Deanne? <laughs> yeah, you get to be Deanne. You have this thing you've made, right? You have a sewing machine. You had some fun prints that you found at the fabric store. And you made some some fun clothing and you took it to the flea market or you took it to some some parties with your friends and you're able to sell it and it did well and you got enough distribution and traction from this that people came to you and said I want to go take this to my friends they're excited to buy it like is there a way I can just buy a bunch from you and then go sell it to my friends someone basically came to her and said can you make me a a lower level than you in your burgeoning multi-level marketing business. And I realize you aren't such a big fan of these MLMs and neither am I. What should, what should you Deanne have done in this situation with your company? What would have been the right thing to do? Because it sounds like you don't have a pathway to the big box stores. You've chosen not to go that route for whatever reason. How do you get your product out? Okay. Well, if I'm putting my Deanne hat on, first of all, my hair is not nearly blonde enough for this, but I'll take a stab at it. So yeah, let's say this person number one, let's call her Sally, comes to Deanne and says, hey Deanne, I think this is great product. I'm pretty sure I can sell this stuff. I like it, I want it for myself, but I'm pretty sure I can sell it to all my friends too. Can I buy some from you at a wholesale price and then turn around and sell it to my friends? Perfect, I think that's fantastic. That's what most companies do, right? Most companies aren't acting as their own retailer. They're creating a product and then putting it out to other retailers to get into a final consumer. But what I don't understand and will always just despise is this concept that Sally then gets to be like the top of this pyramid and have all these levels of people below her and make money off of the fact that those people are buying product in the hopes that they can turn around and sell it as opposed to actually selling products to consumers. I think Sally just needs to set up her own store and Deanne is, she's a manufacturer. She's the designer. She sells products to retailers and the buck stops there. There's just never any need to have this multi-level where the people who are lucky enough to get in early are making money based on the wholesale purchases of people who came in after them. Are you upset about the windfall for Sally? Or are you upset about what happens to the people below her in the chain? Well, I don't necessarily begrudge Sally her profits, but it it just feels completely unfair. Like, I, yeah, I'm mostly upset on behalf of the huge number of people who were unlucky enough to come in after Sally. Like, I mean, theoretically, you could be someone who's a great salesman. You do a really great job of selling these leggings and you're making less money than Sally because Sally makes money off of just selling this dream of bringing other people in to be sales reps. Whereas if you're, let's call her Susie, who's great at selling the actual leggings to final consumers, 
if you're just making money off of that, as we learned in the documentary, the profits from that dwarf the profits that the upline people were making from their downline. So you think as Deanne, you basically, you could have let a few Sally's in the, in the picture. And then at some point you needed to effectively become a pure manufacturer and distributor and not try to to be a tons of Sally's like all the Sally's in the world, get as many Sally's as you want and let them buy from you at wholesale. And if they can sell it, then great. But like this whole concept of the people who got in early are just inherently in a far better position than the people who come in later. There's just no reason for that. I find it very peculiar, your offense to the people who are making this extra money. And I feel like you're misdirected anger here. It it should be towards the people who are uh, suckered in at the back end and basically aren't able to make the sale. I mean, it's all part and parcel of the same problem. The fact that the people at the top are making a large amount of money, it's off of the backs of the people who are at the bottom. So I'm, yeah, it's just the whole concept of that that's upsetting to me. I think you haven't worked in a complex organization before to understand that all these people are doing more than just facilitating the distribution to their downline. I think you forget about the value that they add and the time that they have to spend to go build the people beneath them and coach them and make sure they're set up for successful delivery and execution. I I think that is a valuable service that they're providing and it takes away from their own ability to go be an individual person. Think of a sales manager in a traditional corporate structure. They may have been a salesperson before they were a sales manager. And when they became a sales manager, they lost the bandwidth to go focus on their own individual customers. And instead they win as a collective and their compensation is going to be based on what their whole team is able to do in aggregate because they have to go dedicate more of their time to supporting them. So run it like a normal company then. I mean, I don't have a problem with a company like Neiman Marcus. Well, I do just inherently have a problem with <laughs> Neiman Marcus selling luxury stuff that most people don't need. But as a structure, I don't have a problem with a company like Neiman Marcus or Target where, yeah, if you're higher up in the corporation and it's your job to manage other people, that's great. You get paid a salary for that. If Deanne had wanted to pay salaries to managers who are spending a lot of time, you know, coaching people who are just getting started and helping them figure out how to market these things effectively, I think that's totally legitimate. You can pay a salary to it. It's just this concept of the fact that you are making money off of selling the hope to unqualified salespeople that they can somehow magically become qualified salespeople overnight in what might be an already saturated market, like that is that is the crux of my problem. You shouldn't just be able to sell people opportunity, quote unquote. So if you were able to have an incentive structure in a multi-level marketing program where only actual sales. There's no, let's say you're able to become a sales consultant distributor person with no upfront investment. And basically the company like fronts you the product or does something kind of unusual with it. Uh, but the people in your upline still get bonus based on your performance. Would you be okay with that? Well, I'm okay with a sales manager getting a bonus based on how well their team does. 
that makes sense because they're, what else are they doing if they're not helping their salespeople be effective? And if their salespeople are being effective, they're doing a good job and they should get a bonus. So I, think I understand that. I think that's what MLMs are trying to do. I just think they set the incentives in perverse ways and the buy-in costs really get you in trouble. Yeah, I mean, it's they're, the upline folks that we see in the documentary are being paid large bonuses based on nothing else but that they convinced someone to join. That is the definition of a pyramid scheme. And they effectively admitted that in the documentary. And we see them changing the structure to literally, this is a direct quote from someone, move away from being a pyramid scheme. That's what their corporate person said. <laughs> and we see Mark and Deanne try to explain it away and say, well, people misstate things sometimes. But that is literally what they said. So if I'm if I'm Deanne and I have this product that people want to buy, I think what the right thing to do would have been would be not to go hire my entire family who's really not qualified for half the roles that you put them in and go find some people who are decent business advisors and business people who can help me put together a real reputable company and you could probably grow and do even better than she was able to in their the model that they did. That's probably the right thing to do. I I, I don't think I really don't think they are a true pyramid scheme. A bunch of people joined their firm or joined their business under the pretense that they would be successful without a real shot of getting there. And that's terrible and tragic. But they had a real product. I I, I don't think they were a true pyramid scheme. Well, so let's take a turn a little bit and think about what it would have been like to be one of these sales reps who was working for LuLaRoe as the company was getting started. We have a clip from Mark speaking about what they expected out of their sales reps. Heaven forbid I show up and go, no, I just screwed up because I'm a screw up. No, 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 it can't possibly be that. It has to be something else. Because some people took that box of clothing and turned it into a million dollars. And some people took that box of clothing and put it in the closet because it scared them. The question is, what did you want out of it? Man, that guy sounds like a terrible boss. I would hate to work for him. I'm, I, maybe that's why he had to hire his family. <laughs> so when I hear this clip, I just think he's trying to put the blame of not taking responsibility for anything on other people. But he and his wife created this product that was tanking in popularity because of quality issues. And they were not taking any ownership for that. Basically, they're just trying to put it all on the sales force. There's this attitude of kind of like, a good salesman can sell ice to an Eskimo. Basically, we don't give two craps about the quality of the product. You should be better at selling it. This is 100% on you. And that just feels so toxic to me. This whole clip is, is trash, right? He needs to take some responsibility about the failings that they couldn't scale up their production to match how quickly they were scaling up their sales staff. And that's ridiculous. And he needs to take some ownership on it. And instead trying to push it on the sales consultant, like it's your fault for not being able to move this product. I, that It seems really unfair. And that's why, despite my uh, thoughts in, over the last few minutes, I don't love MLMs. I think they, they trap people and they waste people's money. They give them false expectations of hope and promise and all those things that the Amway guy was talking about selling. Yeah, he's got to take more ownership than this. So you've looked into this. I haven't. 
What are some of the numbers or details about success rates for people who get involved in these MLMs? So the statistics vary a little bit because there have been a number of different surveys taken on this and they get slightly different results. According to a report that the Federal Trade Commission put out in 2011, less than 1% of people who join an MLM actually turn any kind of profit whatsoever. Wow. Which is just abominable. Now, there have been some other surveys and some of them report that much higher percentages make a profit. So the highest one that I saw was a survey that said a quarter of the people turn a profit. Now that sounds a lot better than less than 1%. A quarter sounds kind of high based on my, my life experience and exposure to people who have been in MLMs or, you know, just kind of my, my perception of it. But yeah. 1% is worse than I would have thought. So 25% sounds like a good number, but when we actually look at it a little bit more closely, it starts to crumble. So out of that 25%, only the top like 5% are making even like a few thousand dollars in profit. The vast majority are making like a couple hundred dollars per year in profit. Then when you get up into like the 1%, then you start seeing some really big numbers, like even into the six figures. And just coincidentally, I guess, that top 1% seems to usually be the people who got in early, which again, makes it look like a duck, quack like a duck, seems like a pyramid scheme to me. So are you saying that the pathway to success is to join as many MLMs as you can when they first get started? <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be my new life strategy. I'm just going to like join every single one as early as I can and try to you know convince everyone I know to join. Just build that downline with all of them and hopefully you can... Yeah. I mean, work. you sound so pro MLM. You should probably just confess to people that you're really a Rodan and Fields consultant and you're just making this video to try to convince everyone to buy your product. This is actually an Herbalife commercial. <laughs> so Herbalife, actually, there are some interesting statistics on that because that's one of the bigger MLMs that's been around for a long time. So... Apparently, in the Herbalife universe, about half of their consultants at least report Herbalife reports that they made a profit. I don't know. Brought to that, you by Herbalife. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually a number we can trust. But they're making like, you know, a few hundred dollars a year. And then it's not until you get into the top 10% that you start talking about like even a few thousand dollars a year. And then just like with the other things, you have to get up into the top 1% before you see any kind of legitimate numbers. So one of the things that just really drives me up the wall about this stuff is that they talk about full-time pay for part-time work. Does $300 a year sound like full-time pay to you? Well, yeah, I can Maybe make more than that. Maybe in the 1700s. I mean, it's an abysmally low amount of money. And you're, I mean, you're just wasting your time. Like it, it would take so much time an effort and hounding of your friends and family to turn even that $300 profit. And for what? Like, you're really going to do all of that for $300? It just seems completely wacky to me. So Mark is judging these people in this clip. Mm -hmm. And part of the challenge is that just about anybody can go do these jobs, right? You can, you can become an MLM salesperson as long as you have the starting capital to go buy the, you know, the starter kit, whatever it is. Uh, there's no screening process whatsoever. And I kind of wonder if 
the people who get sucked in are people who have been vetted in the screening process in traditional employment. Maybe you wanted to be a salesperson and you just couldn't find anybody who would give you that opportunity because you didn't have the right soft skills or whatever. And now this MLM is happy to give you that chance. I almost wonder if they're preying on people who are the most, you know, passed over in society who are, who are the least set up to be successful in this kind of role uh, at, a, at a really unfortunate rate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the problem that I have with them is they're telling people, like, you can do this when you have absolutely no evidence that they can do this, right? It's hard to be a salesperson, and a lot of people don't enjoy it at all. And, you know, they have these big, like, parties and conferences where they get people all amped up, and then all of a sudden you go home, the party's over, and you're just, like, flipping through your high school yearbook thinking, well, could I bug this person? Could I bug that person? Like, I'm, I need some actual bodies to be my downline. I need some actual bodies to buy this stuff. Who's going to, who's going to buy in with me? And it's, it's a, I imagine a very lonely process and a very intimidating process. And they don't give two hoots about that, right? All they care about is that you bought in, you brought the product and now it's like, it works if you work it. Just get out there. <laughs> Ugh, it's just crazy. So we started off our episode with a clip from an expert who's on the Lula Rich program talking about just some of the basics of MLM. I think he had an interesting clip that we should play next about how people don't really volunteer to do this kind of thing. They, they almost get coerced into it. When somebody says, why do people join? Well, they didn't join. They were lured in. But this is luring a family into a losing proposition. People that make a lot of money in multi-level marketing are almost always the people who got in early. You can't make money unless you recruit people. Over 80% have nobody below them. They have to lose. So why do people consistently fall for this? I mean, it seems like it's well known. I, I think instinctively we both knew the numbers would be low. I didn't realize it was one percent or single digit percentages if you think it's closer to the 25 percent so why do people keep getting sucked in i think it's because it's usually women and it's usually mothers and they are kind of stuck at home with their kids and feeling some pressure to bring in some kind of income whether you know it's out of need or just sort of like a desire to contribute to the family's finances and they're probably kind of lonely and feeling left behind a little bit, right? The workforce has moved on without them and they feel that a little bit and they want to jump back in. There's so many factors why each individual person would get involved in this, but that hypothetical woman that I've been describing, I think is really like their target prey and that is just so awful to me that they're just taking these women and using the isolation that they feel and the anxiousness that they feel to have a little bit more spending money or to straight up feed their kids and saying, well, we can solve that problem for you. Just give us a little bit of money and everything will turn out great. And they just cram it down your throat with this whole you know, vibe about, you can do this, we believe in you. And then once you've actually signed up, it's just all about 
you know, pressure to buy more and more and more inventory. I think it is just a symptom of the standard average American's family financial strife, right? You have families who are struggling to make ends meet and they see this as a reasonable outlet that has a pretty good chance of success. It's not going to cost them that much and they'll be able to pull it off. They're excited to go make a a few extra hundred or thousand dollars to go contribute to the family's bottom line. You know, maybe they're working part time or, you know, working very little outside of the home. And so this is a great way to go contribute And yeah, it's, I think you're right. It's just, just the desire to go fill a small financial gap in the family. And that's why people get, get sucked in. I mean, if you were making a few hundred dollars a month doing it, I would say, oh, that's great. You know, that'll go a long way towards groceries or that could be your groceries for the month. But when you're talking like a few hundred bucks a year, if you're one of the lucky ones, I mean, come on, like it's just a sucker's bet. So the experts said that 80% of the people who are in an MLM have no downline. They have no one beneath them selling. Do you think that is a function of people joining with the expectation that they, they don't want to try to do anything more than sell to some close family and friends. They don't want to push the sales model on someone else. They don't want to crowd out their own sales space. Do you think it's that people are trying to do it? And they're unsuccessful? Is it just that people thought they would try and then never really got the motivation to do it? What do you think? I think it's a combination of all of those things. So I will say, I think there is a certain percentage of people who buy the product with no intention of even trying to resell it, but just because they like the product and want to buy it at a wholesale price, which PS is another reason why you might struggle to sell it as one of the sales reps. Because if people really like it, they can just buy a little starter kit as a salesperson at a wholesale price and not buy it from you. Uh, Just one of the many reasons MLMs don't make sense. But yeah, I think a lot of people buy it with the intent to sell. And then they're sitting there looking at their sister or their friend from high school in the face and they're thinking, oh my God, do I really have to bring this up? It's going to be so hard. I know they're not going to want it. Like I just, that maybe I'm just projecting because I know that that is how I would feel. If I were in that situation, I would just be incredibly hesitant to bring this to my friends and family and try to force them or even like make the offer, you know, I'm selling this thing, guys. Are you interested? I just think it would be so, so hard for me. Yeah, I think it it goes back to that exponential analysis that we're all so terrible about. I think people have this idea it's going to go so well and they hold their first party and they brought in their closest friends, the people that were most likely going to buy from them. They probably actually get a decent number of sales, uh, not because of pity, but just people want to be supportive but they probably don't make as much as they thought they would, even though they got decent sales numbers. And then how do you, where do you go next? Like, how Mm -hmm. do you, how do you set up that second party or after two? Like, where's that third one go? And it just dwindles. And yeah, who has the motivation to be the actual salesperson, let alone the, someone who's going to build the downline beneath them. That's, it's a pretty tough, you have to have a really large network in order to make that happen. Really, really large. I think you need to be someone who's super into social media, has a lot of friends on Facebook or Instagram, a lot of Twitter followers, whatever. And you got to push it hard. I mean, it's 
it's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. And again, I, I feel like it's easy to imagine yourself doing it when you're in that mindset of being sold to and they're pitching it, you know, as something that's going to change your life and they're throwing numbers at you that are probably not true. Well, there's probably throwing numbers at you about how well their top 1% people are doing. And you see that and you've got stars in your eyes and you feel motivated. And then all of a sudden you're at coffee with your best pal from high school and you got to take a big gulp and try to sell her something. It's tough. It's really tough. There are people who do well. Uh, in the documentary, they talk about uh, a $1.4 million check that was paid out to someone. And uh, maybe there's a little bit of questions about whether people misinterpreted what that was representing. Yeah, that $1.4 million would have represented her bonus checks. That, was, that would have been her bonus checks. Uh, we don't track our retailers' profits. The recognition of huge achievement is not meant to mislead. It's meant to inspire. And if you're misled by it, um, that's on you. Man, this guy, everything is on you. He Nothing should, is on him. He should totally get the words, that's on you, tattooed on his forehead. Uh, it's so disappointing to hear that. Yeah, just so ironic to me. He's all about taking responsibility. And, but when it's my turn to take responsibility, what do you mean? I didn't make a bad product. I didn't try to confuse people. That's on you. That's on you. So... This bonus check that they gave to, I think it was a couple, uh, was at some big sales event. And we should talk about the bonus checks versus your sales earnings, because he mentioned in there that they don't keep track of the performance of individual salespeople. So that $1.4 is what was, I think it was the lifetime earnings, or couple year earnings, really, lifetime, not that long, uh, of a consultant from her downline bonuses. So whenever who got in really early PS. Yeah. One of their earliest people who signed on a few people who signed on a few people beneath them and so on and so on. Uh, they, their check, their cut of the purchases of the people all the way at the bottom over time total to 1.4 million. So they did all right. Their, uh, their gamble in joining LuLaRoe early certainly paid off for them as individuals, but this is definitely not indicative of their performance as a clothing salesperson. Yeah, it has absolutely nothing to do with putting leggings on legs. This is all tied to how many people she convinced to try to put leggings on legs. What I thought was amazing in the documentary was virtually everyone who talked about getting big bonus checks, not this big, but you know, big bonus checks no matter what, said that they were effectively breaking even on the clothing sales part of things. Yep. I don't know. Maybe maybe it feels a little bit like a pyramid scheme. Oh, maybe God. a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they interviewed several of these women who went through this change in structure. So at one point, Lou LaRoe had to change the structure of these bonus checks that were being paid out because they were tied far too much to just convincing people to join, which is what that $1.4 million check represented and had way too little to do with actual final sales to customers. And there are regulations on what MLMs can do and what they can't do because it is too close to a pyramid scheme. LuLaRoe felt like they were crossing that line and so they reined it back in and they stopped tying bonuses so much to purely just recruits 
And when they did that, every single woman that they interviewed was like, oh yeah, my bonus checks, they just like tanked. They were nothing. They'd been getting these insanely huge checks before. And then poof, when you stop being a pyramid scheme, it stops being quite so profitable for those people at the top. Yeah. What's the point of being in the pyramid scheme if you're not going to be at the top? If it, or what's the point of being at the top if it's not going to be profitable? I mean, what's the point of being in a pyramid scheme at all? Well, it's, it's to get people beneath you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So lots of problems, as you can see, with the LuLaRoe structure and with MLMs in general. Yeah, lots of problems that the Rich show talks about. I think this is probably a good stopping point for our part one, because in part two, as we said, there's a bunch of exciting topics to cover. We will get into the LuLaRoe brand of feminism, which just takes the normal issues that you have in an MLM that, that prey on women and takes it to a whole new level. And then also some of the interesting overlaps between multi-level marketing and the traditional job market. There are some things that overlap there. I think MLMs put it on steroids. This is such a rich topic with these MLMs. Uh, we're excited to break this up into a second part, and we hope you'll join us for, for part two of Lula Rich. Yeah, and just one final note. So we are not just a podcast slash YouTube channel. We also put out a blog post to accompany each of our episodes. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please do. And in our blog post, we will also talk about 10 work from home jobs you could do instead of an MLM, if that is something that you are considering. So be sure to check that out too. And definitely join us for next week's episode, part two. We're going to get into some really, really good stuff. So we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks. Take care.